When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. Oh! They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! 
As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander. Uh, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Welcome to Acts, our verse-by-verse journey through the fifth book of the New Testament. It's a story of the movement that Jesus began. You can read about that in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each named after the biographer that wrote them. And then Acts, which is actually written by Luke, uh, continues with the story of Jesus through his disciples. And through their ministry, a man named Paul, who at the time was known as Saul, an enemy of the church, was gloriously converted and became a church planner, to make a long story short, and had planted churches around uh, what we now call Turkey and Greece in that part of the world up into Macedonia planning congregations and making several trips there to visit the congregations, raising up leaders and training them. And he goes to Jerusalem to make a report as well as to celebrate a feast. As a Jew, he celebrated the Feast of Israel as God told them to do every year and uh, to do it in Jerusalem when they could. And so we are here in Acts 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, Luke is speaking in the first person, he's telling the story, The brethren received us gladly, the church there, the believers in Jerusalem where the church began. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, the brother of Jesus, and all the elders or all the leaders of the church there were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, now they tell him what's happening on the home front. You see, brethren, how many myriads of Jews, literally tens of thousands of Jews who are among us have believed. They are all zealous for the law. So they're really excited to be Jewish and they love God, love the law, and love Jesus. Verse 21 But they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles up in the Roman Empire to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Verse 22, what then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So James is the leader of the church, wanted the members of the church there to hear Paul's reports. But they've heard these lies about him. Right? Therefore, do what we tell you. Here's how to silence your naysayers. We have four men who have taken a vow. In keeping the law, often men would take vows, kind of like a fast, a time of consecrating yourself to the Lord. 
Take them, verse 24, and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things which, of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. He's referring to what had happened earlier, uh, six chapters earlier in Acts chapter 15. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem got together to determine what should be done with Gentiles who become believers. But they also keep the law of Moses. And they said it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit that as far as the law of Moses is concerned, that we ask that they only do these four things. Now why? Well, Luke, uh, Levi 26.46 and 27.34 says that God gave the law to Moses for Israel. Now, as believers, we've been grafted into Israel, but not through Moses, through Jesus, through Abraham, who was a descendant of Judah, the the great-grandson of Abraham. And so the faith of Abraham that made him righteous is the faith that makes us righteous. We believe in the miraculous birth of the seed of Abraham who was sent to bless the nations of the world. And we believe that we are the children of Abraham, not through the law, but through the promises made to Abraham, the Galatians says, occurred 430 years before there was a law. So as Gentiles, you can take a sigh of relief when you read the law. I'm you know, reading through the Bible this year, and uh, I'm in the middle of uh, Deuteronomy, and it is breathtaking, some of the things they were told to do, commanded to do by God. So as far as Gentiles are concerned, this is what's asked of them. Now, the enemies of the church have mixed this letter in with their lies. Said, you know, here we have a copy, maybe even, that they're teaching people not to be circumcised, Jews not to be circumcised. That's not the case. In Acts 16, the next chapter or two after Acts 15, Paul circumcises Timothy. Why? He was Jewish. He needed to be observant of the laws given to them through Moses. So Paul's told this, let's silence the naysayers, go to the temple, practice uh, the law of Moses so people can see that people are lying about you. So the church can receive what you have to say. Verse 26, so Paul did what he said. He took the men, the four men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Didn't exactly happen that way. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, we almost made it, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, they knew him when he was there planting churches, stirred up the whole crowd. Now, Asia was a province in western Turkey. They laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. 
So this becomes a mob, an angry mob, who has some Torah precedents, but not all. The Torah says you must have eyewitnesses, at least two eyewitnesses, before you can bring the charge of a crime against someone. So no doubt there's some, some hearsay in this testimony. Now the Torah said blasphemy is uh, a capital offense worthy of death. It's the law in Leviticus that they tried to apply when they killed Jesus, had the Romans crucify the Lord for blasphemy. That's what he was accused of. And here Paul has done something terrible, according to them, by bringing Gentiles into the inner part of the temple, not not where the Gentiles are supposed to stay. There's a four-foot wall that divided the Gentiles from the Jews. And in fact, if a Gentile crossed that wall, they could kill him without uh, Roman intervention. A Roman could be killed for doing this. So this is angry stuff. This is tough stuff. All the city, verse 30, was disturbed. The people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So a Roman commander whose responsibility was the peace and order in that place, he hears there's a riot going on. Verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. Now, they don't know what's going on. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, the crowd stopped beating Paul. So these guys saved his life. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So the Roman commander doesn't know what the truth is. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. Verse 35. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of people followed after crying out, Away with him! So they had to protect him as well as break up this commotion. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? So here they are at the top of the stairs, about to go in to safety. And he replied, can you speak Greek? So he spoke to him in Greek. Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? So there was a rabbi rouser from Egypt that stirred up a mess and he escaped and they, Rome was looking for him. Are you the guy we've been, we want? Are you the guy on the wanted posters? Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, southern Turkey, a citizen of no mean city, not an uh, unimportant place. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. Isn't this awesome? He's been beaten up. Rather than saying, you need to arrest some folks, you know, you need to set some things in order. This is in, you know, I'm going to sue somebody. No. Hey, I'm up here. I can talk to the people down there while I have your protection. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, chapter 22, verse 1, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. If we had time, we could read that defense. You have to come back another time for that. Great defense. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. 
So, you know, God just helped calm them down. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarshish of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. Taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you all are today. So he's affirming them for being zealous. Isn't that awesome? What a guy. Man. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would hear your word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. What does this have to do with us? Well, put yourselves in his shoes. You want to do a good thing. You want to report on what God's doing. You want to let the home church know, hey, this thing is awesome. You guys started it and and listen to what God's doing. And the leaders of the church give you instructions. James, a brother of the Lord, told him to do this. And look what happens to him. Does that ever feel like no good deed goes unpunished? Well, James and the leaders of the church didn't want this to happen to him. They didn't know it would. Christian leaders don't have super intelligence. They're not omniscient. They just knew that this guy's going to speak in the church. We've got to deal with this mess, these lies, and uh, debate all that out. Whereas if he can show, hey, I just celebrated a part of our faith in the temple with these four guys, what's the problem? It would silence a lot of stuff. So it made sense. But in Paul's case, it made him vulnerable for this kind of thing to happen. And this is a transition point in the book of Acts. Now Paul will never again be the same in terms of his access to the public. The Romans, guards, people, are always going to be around him from this point on in the book. It's almost like he's going to go into small group ministry in some way. But he's going to continue to have an impact. Could he have become disillusioned by this? Could he have been disappointed? How about you and me? You know, your life's going the way you want it, and God's using you mightily, and then you come to some people you highly respect, and they ask you or tell you to do something, you do it, and now you're suffering because of it. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, how to avoid staying disillusioned. It's impossible to live life without experiencing some experiences that could disillusion you. But the key, if we're going to be fruitful people, is don't stay that way. Don't get stuck that way. Do you wrestle with anger? You easily angered? People telling you you need anger management? Why are you angry? It could be you're disillusioned. Little girls across the nation are singing from the Frozen cartoon, let it go, let it go, and you don't want to let it go, so you don't think that is cute. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You know it in your head, but it's not in your life. Very much at all. It could be you've been disillusioned. How to avoid staying that way. First key, you've got ten keys we're going to look at today. First key, this isn't like a recipe, steps one, two, three. Any one of these can change your life. So listen closely. One of them may be for you, if not more. First of all, understand what disillusionment is. Maybe you've been told you're depressed when in reality, why are you depressed? Maybe you've been disillusioned. The word disillusion, as a verb, means to cause one to realize their belief or ideal is false. 
Maybe you put your trust in your stockbroker and found out they're human too. Maybe you put your trust in the security of the cloud and all your private information has been compromised by a store that you love to shop at. You could become disillusioned by that, right? What you thought was true is actually false. As a noun, the word disillusionment means disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. Maybe the car salesman told you this car will run for 200,000 miles, so you, so you buy the 100,000-mile warranty and it goes out at 101,000 miles. That's disillusionment if you hold on to it. As an adjective, the word disillusioned is if you've been disillusioned, someone has been disillusioning you, it's a state of sadness after learning that what was considered to be long-lasting or real was only an illusion. If your reality is discovered to not be real, then your illusion has been discovered. Or your illusion has been disrespected. You've been disillusioned. You've been sold a bill of goods in life. So remember what it is. So you know, okay, this is why I'm angry. This is why I'm depressed. Remember that hard times are a part of living. It just is. God told Adam, the first man, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Job said it like this, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. If it's not spitting up on everything, it's tearing stuff up. Number three, remember our faith is going to be tested. Anybody can believe anything when life is easy, right? Faith is revealed when testing comes. It's proven to be real. Peter wrote in his first letter, chapter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. How can we rejoice? Here's why. That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let me break it down for you. What is he saying? We can greatly rejoice, if not but for a little while, because the genuineness of our faith that is being tested by fire can lead to praise, honor, and glory when Jesus is revealed in us, to us, and through us. That's life. Remember that our calling includes tribulation. So living includes tribulation, and our calling includes tribulation. Our faith is going to be tested. Jesus said in John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Paul, having learned this, could have peace in the midst of his storm. In the world you will have tribulation. You don't have to name it and claim it. You don't have to tape it on your refrigerator and believe God for it. It's just going to happen. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Tell somebody trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So stay close to me. Story's not over. You're going to make it. He didn't promise us a a rose garden. You know, I beg your pardon. I never promised you a 
But if he did, roses have thorns. In chapter 4 of his first letter, Peter wrote, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, like, like you're the only one. You're not the only one. But to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. We get to know him, Paul said, in the fellowship of his sufferings. You've been betrayed, that's some of the greatest pain there is. The Lord knows what that's like. Been abandoned, words cannot describe what that feels like. The Lord knows what that's like. We can come boldly to our priest at the throne of grace to find help in our hour of need because he knows he's easily touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We also need to remember what difficulty can produce. Know that hard times are part of living. Know that your faith is going to be tested and knowing that your calling includes some struggle, some difficulty. You may not think it's struggle right now. It probably feels like outright warfare, but the day will come. You'll look back. That, was, that wasn't easy. But remember, difficulty can produce good through it. How? Drawing close to Jesus. Suffering produces endurance, Paul wrote in Romans 5. How did he know that? Because he suffered. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope produces freedom from disillusionment. Story's not over. I don't like this chapter in my book. I want to jump to the end of the book. But who would read a book where everything goes great? All the great movies have conflict and resolution, right? It's part of life. It's the human drama. It's, it's the Christian walk. It's the experience that is included in living on this planet. James, same James, wrote this. In fact, it's believed that he wrote this letter before this happened in Acts 21. He wrote, My brother encountered all joy when you fall into various trials. Why did he use the word fall? Because you don't expect to fall when, you, when it happens. Count it all joy when things suddenly happen, knowing that the testing of, you, testing of your faith produces, somebody said produce, produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and, with, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So let's break it down a little bit. Rejoice. Count it all joy when you face trials. Why? Because they produce something. Your trial is a testament of your faith, and the testament of your faith produces patience. Now, we often jokingly say, oh, don't pray for patience, because God will send a trial. But who would pray for patience when everything's going great? We pray for patience when we're being tested. You better pray for it when you need it. The testament of your faith Produces patience. What does that produce? Well, when it has its perfect work, it perfects us, makes us whole, so that we lack nothing. Can we say maturity? 
And along the way, we need wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And he goes on to say, verse 7, Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he who wavers is like a wind of the sea, a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. So when your faith is tested, stand strong. Not saying to pray for trials, but when they happen, it's like, oh, okay. This is what that's like. Somebody said, Smith Wigglesworth woke up and saw the devil and said, oh, it's you, and rolled over and went back to bed. Went back to sleep. Now, the first half of this, the first five points were about disillusionment itself and the things we need to know and remember. Now comes some application, the things to do. Remember to pursue nearness to Jesus. This is so important for us as believers. This, His presence, in His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Just tasting His presence gives us hope, gives us faith. In His presence it brings purity and cleansing. Fanny Crosby faced blindness. How did she survive that? By drawing near to the Lord and writing songs. Songs of faith. In the face of discouragement, she didn't back down. Wrote songs like Blessed Assurance. Songs like Draw Me Nearer. I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice and it told thy love to me. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing the whole song. But I long to rise in the arms of faith, and be closer drawn to Thee. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where Thou hast died. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to Thy precious leading side. What a strange lyric. She was drawing near to the Lord, knowing Him in the fellowship of His suffering. And He went through stuff too. As we draw nearer to Him, it makes us more like Him, in spite of what the circumstances look like. James also wrote in his letter, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Some people resist the devil and he doesn't flee because they're not submitting to God. The key to authority is being under authority. Submitting to God, then resisting the devil, and he will flee from us. If we're not submitting to God, chances are we're resisting God and submitting to the devil. Got it backwards. Come near to God. The old King James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near or come near to you. What's the result of that? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. As we draw near to the Lord, he purifies our heart. He convicts us of sin of things we need to turn from, repent, choices we've been making, the way we've been living, the wrong path we've been walking, drawing nearer to the Lord, causes us to realize where our life is not reflecting the righteousness that He has given to us by faith. So nearness to God is so important. Somebody said important. Sometimes... When things come against us that would disillusion us, we see our selfishness. The idolatry of our comfort level. 
1989, Yvette's father died. And she went to Zimbabwe to attend the funeral. We go to the airport two weeks later to pick her up. And she's not alone. When she gets off the plane, her mother is with her. Mama Edna Selbin moved in with us. It became obvious in a matter of hours things were not right with her. Her memory was gone. She had Alzheimer's, all the symptoms. And we thought, great, what an opportunity for God to use us to see her healed. Yes! We took communion with her. We named it and claimed it, blabbed it and grabbed it, killed it and chilled it. We did all this stuff. Because we had seen God do tremendous things in our life. This was another challenge, you know. And took her to a Reinhardt Bonnke meeting. Six months later, it became obvious that God wasn't on our timetable. And I became disillusioned. Became angry. That can tell you I became hard to get along with. One day crying, she says, I want my husband back. This was her mom. Her mother wound up living with us for two and a half years, but we didn't know it. We thought it was the rest of her life, and who knows when that could be. One day in prayer, I drew near to Jesus. And repenting of selfishness, harshness, the lack of Christ-likeness. And in that atmosphere, just me and Him, the Lord asked me a question. Do you want me to use you? That just a strong impression, not an audible voice, but a strong impression right here, just a thought came. Do you want me to use you? It was very personal. I said, yes. I'm thinking, tents and 18-wheelers and PA systems and, you know, Jet airplane trips around the world preaching the gospel. Yes, I want you to use me. Yes. And you know, the Lord is Jewish. They answer questions with questions and answers with questions. Do you want me to use you? Yes, I want you to use me. And I meant it with all my heart. Then comes the next question. Then can I trust you to show this sick lady my unconditional I wept. I broke. I surrendered to the call of God. And if I can tell you, I was a different man. It wasn't easy, but I was a different person. I had a sense of mission. I got new marching orders. That would not have happened if I stayed bitter in my disillusioned state. Some people throw away their Christian faith. Stop following Jesus. It doesn't work. Well, you're, maybe you're holding on to a formula rather than the Lord. We're in a relationship, amen? Number seven, remember to follow what He shows you. So having been, having been revealed something to show a sick lady God's unconditional love, I had to do it. When we would go to a restaurant and it was time to leave and pay the bill and her making a scene because she thought she hadn't eaten, I thought, surely you could feel the fullness in your belly. But we showed her love. In some ways, it was easier for me than for Yvette because it's her mom, right? Our children learn to care for hurting people in a way they wouldn't have learned if something like that wasn't modeled for them. So there was application time. See, it's not just information. It's the application of information that creates change in our lives. 
Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. In other words, my sheep hear me, and they do what I say. So It's not enough just to hear God's voice and fill journals full of amazing revelations if you don't obey any of them. We're accountable for what we know, so keep that in mind. When Ananias was told to go lay hands on this wicked man named Saul who was out to destroy the church, Ananias didn't want to do it. The Lord had blinded him. He was stuck in a house in Damascus, totally bewildered. His theology turned upside down. He'd been resisting Jesus, thinking he was serving God. And Ananias told the Lord, I don't want to do this. And the Lord said this to him, Go, for he, Saul, the man who became Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine. Why is he chosen? To bear my name before Gentiles, kings, we're going to see that happening in the future parts of the book that we get to, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's You know, all through the journey, several places from Asia Minor back to Jerusalem, he was getting prophetic words. Don't go, don't go. Chains await you. Hard times are coming if you go there. What was going on with that? Well, he was receiving warnings from the Lord, just like here. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Why? So that Paul wouldn't be disillusioned when it happened. Now, why would the believers say, don't go, you're not supposed to go? Well, they mixed in their desire, their love in with a prophetic word. The Lord says, chains and afflictions await you, therefore, don't go. Now, Paul knew God was telling him to go. Follow what he shows you. And remember to put your armor on and pray. Put your armor on. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand and take your stand against the devil's schemes. Taking the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes with the preparation of the gospel of peace, being prepared to speak God's Word. Praying always in the Spirit with all your prayers. Be alert and watch with purpose and perseverance, interceding on behalf of all the saints. Sometimes you need to tell somebody, I need some prayer. I'm struggling today. I'm wrestling with being disillusioned or disappointed or or whatever the dis is going on in your life. Remember to remember what you know. Be willing to learn, but remember what you know. What has God taught you that may apply in this situation. I can think of a couple other times when I was disillusioned. But the Lord showed me something that I'll never forget. And when I face things in the future, I apply that truth in it. And I I don't go to that place emotionally or spiritually. Years ago, I was at a men's and boys retreat with my little boy, Zane. He was just six or seven back then, maybe five, in Glenrose, Texas, at the Methodist camp. And we were in the bunkhouse that night, Friday night, and then Saturday we went to the Creation Science Museum, stuff like that. Well, on the Friday night, we're 
sleeping, I wake up in the middle of the night with thoughts racing through my mind, just strong impressions, and they won't leave me alone. I try to rebuke them. You know, I try to rebuke the devil. Finally, I try to submit to God, and peace comes. And here was the thoughts. The thoughts were Bill Goslowski, a friend of mine who pastored in Miami, Florida. I'd been there three or four times to minister, loved the place, loved his church that he started there with his wife, Rhonda said, Bill Goslowski is leaving Miami, and I'm sending you to replace him. And so at first I tried to rebuke these thoughts, because, no, he's not going to leave. You know, that's, you know, that's his baby. You've used him there. Don't let him leave. You know, that kind of thing. And Devil, this is, try- this is you trying to throw me off. I'm part of a good church. I'm involved. I'm happy. Don't let me get excited about something that's not you, you know. And, and it wouldn't leave me alone. Finally, I surrendered. Peace came. And I fell asleep. The next day, I came home, and here comes what appears to be confirmation. I had to get ready to go to work and uh, that night, Saturday night, and my wife says, Bill called. So when I was able to call Bill, he says, man, I'm leaving Miami. I want you to come replace me. Would you think about it? I said, wow, I'm not surprised by this question, but I'm going to seek counsel from my elders. Why? Because something as drastic as moving your family, you need for the Lord to confirm it to you. God speaks in a spectrum of ways. Strong impressions, sometimes called the inward witness, some people call it the whisper of God, the written word of God, wise counsel, prophetic words, visions and dreams, audible voice, which is very rare, circumstances that line up. So I thought, you know, I need to seek counsel. So I I called the church and spoke to Joe Oakley. He was one of the elders at Shady Grove Church. He's now pastor of Grace Fellowship Church in Grand Prairie. And Joe took notes of what I said. And uh, he says, okay, I'll speak to the elders next time we get together and pray. I think it was Tuesday we're going to get together and I'll let you know. So uh, Wednesday he let me know. And this was what the elders felt we should do. Do it if it happens exactly like the Lord spoke it. But if it changes, don't do it. Okay, that's simple enough, right? So Thursday, I call Bill, and guess what he says? There's been a change. I'm going to take a sabbatical for six months. I need for you to just come and relieve me. You know, move your family there, relieve me for six months. I said, I can't do it. He said, well, I thought you said God told you you were going to do this. I said, no, God told me he was going to do this permanently. And my oversight says to only do it if it happens exactly like he said it. Well, I'm not leaving. Well, then I'm not going. Well, in this process of a few days, I got real excited. Real, too excited. Then I got angry and disillusion. God changed his mind? Or God allowed a human to mess up his plans? I don't have all the answers to it. I'm willing to debate with anybody on the subject. Uh, God can change his mind. I mean, he was going to destroy Israel in the wilderness, remember, and Moses talked him out of it. I mean, it's there in the Word. And as far as people... Messing up his plans, God uses 
people's messes. He made everything for his purposes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Nothing else. There is firewood. And so um, I had to surrender. But this is what messed with me. God, I know, is omniscient. He knows all things. So he knew this would happen. Why take me through the process, the drama, get me real excited to be disappointed? Well, what he was doing was those fleshly motives that wouldn't be good for a pastor, not saying I'm totally pure standing up here, but the ones I had back then weren't, weren't as pure as they are now, and they needed some circumcising. They needed some, some fire to burn that chaff out of my life. And they became revealed through this experience. Peace came through drawing near to the Lord and writing my prayers in my journal, and I drew a picture that I saw in my heart, I felt in my heart. It was a gravestone. I had a little grass around it, not an artist or anything. But the epitaph on the stone said, Here lies life the way Alan Latta wants it. The way I wanted life was for God to never change his mind, for God to make things go my way. When he's God, I'm not, and I have to surrender and give him the right to change his mind, just like my children gave me the right to change my mind, even though they didn't like it. Peace came, another level of Maturity came in my life through what could have been disillusionment. I could have thrown my faith away. I could have... feel like I'm talking to somebody today. Don't throw your faith away. Draw near to Jesus. Draw near to Him and what He shows you. If He hasn't shown anything to you yet, draw near to Him. He may bring some things to remembrance that He has already shown you. If you know something, remember to remember it. Don't forget it. Hebrews 2.1 The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. The old King James says, lest we let them slip. Or the new King James says that. It's possible to know truth and let it slip away from you because of the lack of application. Oh, I know that. I've got the t-shirt and the ball cap. I don't want to hear it again. Well, you're going to hear it again because the truth that's applied is what changes lives, not the truth that is known. If you continue in my words, Jesus said, continue. That's continued application. Then you might, you'll, you'll be my disciples indeed. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So the truth that makes us free is the truth that we know, and the truth that we know when we apply it is where freedom comes. Last point, we're on the home stretch. We're passing third base. Remember to allow others to remind you. You may not want to hear it, but you need to. Remember to allow others to remind you of the truth you know, but need to apply. I have some good friends that are trying to minister to a family member who's been disillusioned by life and knows everything I've shared here today and more. But they are not allowed to tell their relative the truth because the relative says, I don't want to hear that. I already know that. You know, kind of like, tell me something good. Tell me what I want to hear. It's like their ears are itching to hear something different. 
There is nothing different. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by Him. His sheep know His voice, and they follow Him. It's in the application, and He uses His body to do it. We're supposed to assemble ourselves together and exhort one another daily. What is that? Reminding one another of what we already know so that we don't let it slip. Knowledge is a poor substitute for reality. Draw near to Jesus. Let him show you things maybe you don't know and remind you of what you already know to show you where you need to be applied and allow him to use people in your life to bring truth to you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for every person here that they would draw close to you in their hour of testing. When they're tempted to give up their faith, May they keep on trusting you anyway. Because in the long run, we win. And Lord, between here and the win, may we know we're already winners. We're already more than conquerors. And that through drawing close to you, Lord, may we hear your voice and follow what you tell us. And may we with fresh ears begin to hear the truth shared with us by those that love us. Oh